Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in the Crake Valley with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. <laughs> Hello, David. Uh, it's been only a matter of a couple of weeks since we were last together, but the weather's changed. It's a feeling of spring in the air, which is wonderful. There is, yes. Spring has sprung in Cumbria. Looking up the lane here, there's a row of daffodils. The birds are out in full song. Still plenty of snowdrops around as well, but there is there's that sweetness in the air, isn't there? Long awaited. We've had a rough couple of months in Cumbria. We have indeed. It's been very damp, and uh, elsewhere in Britain particularly, there's been floods, and it's been very hard for a lot of people. But uh, there's a sense of spring here, and uh, the daffodils, as you say, are out. And we're in Blitherbarrow Lane. Uh, I think Blitherbarrow is a lovely name because Blither, as anybody in Scotland will know, is a chattering between friends. Uh, Barrow is hill. One would suggest there was a Scotsman came here years and years ago, and it's a, a reference to the tumbling beck here, chattering. Rather lovely, isn't it? We are here today in the Crake Valley. Now, this wasn't uh, an area of the lakes that I knew particularly well. Can you explain geographically where we are, Mark? Well, Crake Valley, the river name itself, refers to Heron or Great Crane. Uh, and we're at the southern end of Coniston Water. And right. I'm looking north and I can see Dow Crag and Coniston Old Man through the trees. So that's mm. quite a dramatic scene. They've still got snow on them, still feeling at the beginning of March. Mm. That winter is with us. It'll cling on a little longer yet. Well, on the high fells, there's still plenty of snow around, isn't there? Yeah. And we're here in the Crake Valley, Mark. For what reason? What's our podcast about today and who are we going to be meeting? Oh, it should be a special one today because we're meeting John Atkinson, whose family have been here for many a long year, and his partner, Maria Benjamin, who together have developed a really dynamic farming enterprise that uh, harmonises traditional farming values and diversity with uh, a modern audience and uh, have made a success out of it. Farming, of course, plays a hugely important role in both the economy and the landscape uh, of Cumbria. It's a critical time for farming um, throughout the UK. We've got a new recognition of the value of public goods that, uh, in particular, Michael Gove, uh, when he was Environment Secretary, talked at great length about. And there's also obviously been um, a big movement towards veganism um, and the awareness of kind of animal rights and welfare there so huge issues that permeate society um, and that are going to change the landscape of farming within Cumbria and the lakes Mm. so this is the right time really to be having these conversations it's a conversation within the industry and and the countryside we are in a challenging time uh, and i think this farm is emblematic of the way forward should make for a fascinating discussion mark we'll go now to meet up with john and maria Well, I'm in the farmyard of Nipfake Grange. 
at the lower end of Coniston Water and I'm in the wonderful company of John Atkinson and Maria Benjamin. Lovely to see the pair of you. Nice to see you, Mark. It's a delight. Now, John, you're a part of a family that's been here a rather a, a few generations. Yeah, well, we've lived here, I'm the sixth generation, and my son will be the seventh generation to, on this farm. But we've lived in the valley for probably 600 years and moved three miles. That's so, slow movement. Slow isn't it? movement. I've got relations all over the world, but one poor bloke had to stop here all the time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and how long have you been here, Maria? Um, I've only been here, what, five years? Yeah, five six, years, six years six maybe. Now. Yeah. You're from a totally different perspective. Completely. Yeah, so John is very much rooted to this place. You know, he's like an old oak tree and yeah. I'm like tumbleweed. I've just happened to <laughs> <laughs> happened upon the place and I've, I've kind of stuck. And you're an artist, so what's that background that you have well, yeah, I was working and living in London for 12 years. Uh, did my master's at Goldsmiths College. Um, living on the poverty line in London is difficult as an artist. And then I got offered a job in the Lake District for Grisdale Arts. So I moved up in 2010 and worked for them as a programme manager for three years. And um, I just they have a small holding, so we did actually have pigs when I was there, and I, I realised I prefer working with the animals than other artists. <laughs> and I thought I wanted to kind of move direction, but I didn't quite know how. And um, eventually, after a, a while, I ended up getting together with, with John, a farmer. And um, I just love it. I find the farm really creative, um, so interesting. And when my artist friends ask me, oh, don't you miss doing art? I feel like I'm far more creative than I ever was when I was in London. What we'll first do, John, we'll go look at your stock, your sheep and your cattle, and then we'll come back and look at what Maria's been doing. Well, we've just walked down the road from the Grange, John and I. He's introduced me to the yard, the open yard with uh, stock in it. So what sort of breeds have we got here, John? So in the shed, we've got um, chiviots, which is what we have up on the fell. I used to have herdwicks, but they're all shot in foot and mouth. So I couldn't get any herdwicks to replace them. So I decided to go into chiviots. Right, and yes. I, I think it was a good move, really. Um, the nice sheep, the wool's obviously worth a lot more. They're easy, fairly easy to look after. And then we've got some uh, castle milk moorich, which originally came from the castle milk estate on the side of Glasgow, which is now a massive uh, run-down uh, sink estate, but it was a big fancy estate. It nearly died out, but thankfully Joe Henson bought the last four. Right, and yep. all, the, all the ones in the, the world now descend from those animals that he managed to save from extinction. And that's why he set the Rare Breed Survival Trust up, because he realised that a lot of these wonderful breeds that were sort of really in fashion in Victorian times were all disappearing. We've also got some uh, Tees waters in there, which oh, yes. come from the Tees Valley. They've got really, really good wool, long, lustrous, curly wool. And used to be really, really fashionable, but as people started wearing synthetic clothing like you have, Mark, yeah. terrible, terrible altogether. Terrible um, wool went out of fashion. It's what the British Empire was built on, was wool. Uh, and hopefully it's coming back into fashion because it is recyclable. It uh, takes in lots of carbon and uh, it keeps you warm as well. I'm quite interested in rare breeds now, and I'm actually a trustee of the Rare Breed Society now, but um, I've always liked rare breeds, partly 
because they're interesting and partly because actually having something unique is a good selling point. Farming's become too much uh, an industry. The sort of variety's been lost to a certain degree. I'm in the uh, uh, basket full of uh, lots of different eggs. Something's down, something might be up, and especially with the uh, wool and uh, meat and stuff, having something that's very different is a good selling point. Well, I gather you've got some work uh, and you'll join us in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got held up this morning, so I had a few other jobs to do and then I had a, a couple of cows calved this morning, so I was dealing with them. So these are desperately wanting clean out, as you can see. If you go on soon, Maria, I'll uh, catch you up in a minute. OK, we look forward to All seeing right. you. See you, Matt. Wow, that's a contrast, Maria. I've come across the yard with the very rural smells of the sheep and the cows, and I've come into a totally different environment, a lovely little barn space with rafters, and uh, all around the walls there are boxes and bits of wool. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing in this space? Well, it's not always smelled this nice. Uh, this used to be a shipping where um, John's dad would milk the cows and um, house them in winter. I, I'm looking around and I noticed some lovely labels on the shelves there. And what looks like uh, candles or something, uh, or are they soap? Yep, it's soap. Um, it came from me wanting a Jersey cow. <laughs> which doesn't you don't necessarily see the connection but I wanted a Jersey cow because I wanted our own non-pasteurized milk for the house and I wanted a calf at foot uh, system so I got a Jersey cow and she can feed her calf and we just take enough milk for ourselves but it was still too much milk so we're feeding it to the dogs we're feeding it to the pigs and it felt really wasteful and I thought <laughs> what else can we do with this milk I tried making cheese and that was a disaster. And then I thought, I've had goat's milk soap before, so I thought, why don't I try making Jersey cow soap? The soap has really taken off, which absolutely surprised me. Um, so I started off with a variety of six different fragrances, four fragranced and two unfragranced. And now I don't know how many different products I've got. It must be about 50 different things that I make. Now, this is another side of the business. I see upon the shelf here a variety of walls in tassels, uh, different tones, uh, some tangerine, some teal green, some grey, some very rich tones. This was actually the first bit of the business that I... So this was before the, the soap. And um, it came about because when I started helping John on the farm, I thought, I really want my own sheep. Um, <laughs> and so I looked at the breeds um, that I would like and I saw some castle milk murets. So I did a bit of research and there was um, actually a document that was made by the Rare Breed Survival Trust, which was about profitability from rare breeds. And that said, you can make rare breeds profitable in your business, but you need to use all of them. So you need to sell the meat, you need to make sheepskins or have the wool spun and sell that. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually thought about 
doing anything like that. I thought you just had your sheep and you took it to the livestock auction and that was about it. And I didn't really think, well, where where do all these balls of wool come from and how does that happen? Mm. So I went to Woolfest, which was a, a massive gathering in Cockermouth. Cockermouth yeah. yeah, which was incredible to see all these women who absolutely know their stuff, absolute connoisseurs of wool. And I realised there is a gap in the market for you know, rare breed wool and single farm yarn. People want from a particular farm so they know that the animals have been looked after properly and it's a good quality wool um, and breed specific as well. We do different things with the wool. Some of the wool is exported to Japan. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's sent to the wool board and some of it I pick out to have spun into knitting yarn and more recently I've um, sent some away for spinning to make into cloth. The products you're creating are quality. It just oozes quality. Yeah, the quality is so important. I would just be, you know, I wouldn't sell anything that was substandard. And, you know, it is more expensive than, um, you know, things that you might buy if you went, a bar of soap that you might buy in the supermarket or wool that you might um, buy in a, a wool shop. Uh, someone just gave me a book. Um, it's looking at how cloth and wool was processed in 1700s. Mm-hmm. And for a length of cloth to make a dress in today's money would have cost £900. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that things right. are more expensive now. We've just become used to things being super cheap. But they're not super cheap because someone's being ripped off along the way. And yes. if you don't rip anyone off along the way in your process, um, it's going to be more expensive. Mm, yes. I just feel very um, proud that everyone in the process that we work with is paid a proper wage. Uh, we've been round the farmyard and now we've been looking at this uh, associated business and uh, really I'm, I want to get a feel for the setting itself. So let's head up onto the fell. Fabulous to come up that track. It's a wonderful way up, John. All the way up from Nethwaite, we've come up onto Parker Moor. It's a fascinating journey. What is this track itself? Well, this would be the original route over to Hawkshead, so it would be, in effect, a coach road. And uh, the monks of Furness Abbey had all the sort of farmland around here, and they would transport wool back to the the monastery to then sell on to uh, people in Italy and wherever. And so you can imagine some monk in his habit trailing up here with a couple of pack horses to <laughs> collect wool from uh, from the farm. And then obviously after that, it would be a trade route over to Hawkshead. So Hawkshead and Dalton were the big sort of areas. So Hawkshead was really prosperous and Dalton was really prosperous. Mm. And a lot of the other little villages were very small. And it was only when sort of copper mining and things really started and... Uh, graphite in Keswick obviously that those sort of villages grew and became perhaps bigger than more significant yeah, yeah more significant yeah uh, but the view from here is absolutely spellbinding Coniston Old Man and Weatherlam and um, Dow Crag and Fairfield over the back there we've got um, the snow on and yeah. the snow yeah it's quite a lot of snow and I like it when it's like this when the sort of outline of the hills are lined with snow it, it just makes it really crisp doesn't it you know yeah. and after all the rain we've had recently it's nice yes. to have a, a nice dry day of the great yeah. linear lake 
which was famous for Campbell. Did you ever see Campbell on the lake? No, I was, I was quite young at the time, but I remember sitting in our front room uh, listening to the radio, and it was on the radio, and then there was this almighty bang, and we could hear it from our house, which was like sort of five miles away from where he flipped. Oh. And I'd be very, very young at the time, but it stuck in my memory. The actual uh, sort of uh, pomp and that I never got involved with, but no. the people in Coniston, you know, they still revere him, even though... He spent loads of money and never paid anybody. They still think he's, he was amazing because he had such a charisma and That's character it. about him. Well, you can see down from below us, John, you can see the great linear lake, as I mentioned, uh, with the islands uh, and the pastures right on the shore and the woodlands that run up onto the moorlands. Could you give me a sort of a description of the transitions that we're witnessing. Yeah, well, that's why a lot of the environmentalists really love this sort of area because you've got that almost natural succession from the lakeshore and the sort of ash and, and willow and alder that would live by water up through Sassile Oak woodland to mountain ash or rowan as we call them or whatever mm-hmm. uh, and uh, birch up to juniper and then onto the open felt. We had some twitchers stayed at Parker Moor recently. Bird they, watchers. Bird watchers, sorry, sorry. Ornithologists. Um, Ornithologists, yeah, even. Yeah, and then they, uh, they spotted almost 90 different species of bird in a week. Wow. And uh, wow. they said, you know, they'd never been anywhere in England where they'd seen so much diversity. And it's because of that sort of succession. So we've got sandpipers down on the lakeshore that nest on the lakeshore. Then we've got all the woodland birds, including tree creepers and grey wagtails and things. Then we've got green woodpeckers that live on the anthills that, you know, on the fell side. Yeah, the anthills, yeah. Yeah, loads of woodcock and snipe on the fell. If you go out in the evening, you're just popping up all over the place. Mm. Uh, and this last couple of years, we've actually got the curlews and the lapwings back. So, you know, that's really, really special. To- yeah, I, I heard curlews for the first time this year, yesterday, up in Geltse, where I live. So <laughs> they are about, and have you heard any this year yet? Only uh, <laughs> in Ripon in the Yorkshire, I haven't heard any here yet. But oh. it's, it's a lot warmer over there. Well, we've moved on a little bit further. We can just see down to Torva. Um, I'm reflecting on this changing landscape, casting your mind back a couple of generations. What would the farming life be here? Well, it would be much less intensive. If you went back to before the First World War, there was no medicines to help keep the sheep in numbers. There was no um, fertilisers. It was Everything was very natural. And so you had to work with nature rather than against it. And then obviously yeah. after the Great Depression of the 30s and the, the wars, Britain was very, very hungry. So uh, farmers were really, really encouraged to lift numbers, produce more. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a child, we were still growing turnips and barley and being very, very self-sufficient. I talk to a lot of people now about how I farm now and I call it back to the future because... We've gone through a period of massive intensification in agriculture, which hasn't really helped anybody because as consumers, people have got totally removed from the food. Mm, and, you no. know, most people don't know where it comes from even. Farmers have been totally delinked from the consumer, so they sell to somebody and then it goes to somebody else and then it goes to somebody else and ends up on a supermarket shelf wrapped in plastic. What we're trying to do is reconnect with the consumer and go back to farming like my great-grandfather might. So a much more diverse stock, much lower levels, 
you know, farming with the environment rather than trying to farm against the environment. There's new terminology for that, which someone told me recently, which I've never heard before, but it's biomimicry-based business. And biomimicry-based business means that you're looking to nature as your inspiration and how nature works, which is complex, diverse and low input. And if you think about your business in those terms, it means... um, you know, there's much more resilience there because if you produce a monocrop, if you have one, you know, bad weather, um, that's your whole business gone. But if you have all this diversity, then you're far more protected. Mm-hmm. And nature works like that. You know, you're not adding loads of input. You're not um, investing so much money in one thing. And there's diversity in the landscape um, and it's complex. The systems are complex. And that makes for a much more resilient nature and it makes for a much more resilient business. For a while I was thinking, oh, our business is all, you know, we're doing so many different things, maybe we need to specialise. And that's exactly what we don't need to do. It's opposite. I'm called to reflect on to our third podcast we did 18 months ago when we met a lady called Hilda Noble who was very rooted in her heritage in droving and cattle. There exists in the farming community this sense of not letting the side down. This is the way farming is done. So how do you feel you're contributing to a change in that perspective? Being different is very difficult. It doesn't matter what business you're in. If you try and do something very different, then your peers sort of look down on you and think, what the heck are you... They can't cope with the pioneer. No. (laughs) And the pioneer is the one who makes the difference. And do you find that as well, Maria, do you? Well, it's different for me because I'm not steeped in that history. So I've just come into the farm and seen things as opportunities. Mm. Um, So it's been easier for me to suggest change. Um, There's not the pressure from the family. Uh, I can totally understand um, why people don't want to change. It's easier to stick to what you know. It can be quite frightening um, to try new things and also even to research um, and to take a risk. I think especially on a family farm because you're always thinking about the next generation and wanting to improve it for the next generation, leave the farm in a better place. But if you risk it by, say, taking a loan or something like that, that's tricky. And when I joined John in the farm and had all these ideas... Uh, it was very encouraging, but he said, take it slowly, start small. So only invest a few hundred pounds, see how it goes. Mm. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. You've not destroyed a business. You know, it is, you just move on to the next idea. So, for example, we thought about starting a farm shop, but we didn't spend lots of money making a, a tea room and nobody came. We no. put up a little shed, you know, um, and it didn't work because no cyclist stopped for uh, tea or coffee. But it didn't matter because the shed is we now use for lambing um, and we use it for storage. So, it, you know, that's OK. Um, so that's a risk. But I think probably coming from an art background, if you, you know, you're always questioning... Um, always researching, trying new things and you don't maybe um, have that fear of failure in the same way, you just see it as a learning. I think think that's the the nub of it really, that farming is steeped in tradition and you struggle to do anything different than your father did or your granddad did whereas in art it's you shove to be different and you will not be successful if you do the same as everybody else no, you have to do something however ridiculous and stupid it may be to do something different is what really pays so i think the combination of me being a bit uh, sort of stoic and uh, steady and Maria being this uh, sort of firefly it works quite well really
we've wandered out over a beck, up through a gate, and I come up to a Parkermore, this fabulous barn-like cottage, tucked away upon the hill in a setting that is absolutely magical. Uh, we've come into the dining room area, you might call it, it's got a, a range and beams and a flag floor and a bench and a simple window looking out. It's got a spice cupboard next to the uh, range. Uh, this is an amazing place, John. Yeah, well, it, it, it was built by the monks of Furness Abbey originally in the sort of 12th, 13th century, uh, and they would live here, and it would be a one-storey building then, mm -hmm. and then it's been added to and added to. But if you look outside, you can tell that the original building, the stone's very small because they would just gathered stone from the fields and, and made a hovel in the... <laughs> uh, and then the upper storey is much better stone, which has been quarried. But, yeah, it won't have changed much probably since the 1700s, really. The spice cupboard was there to keep the, the valuable spices and salt and sugar warm and dry because mm -hmm. the, the place would be really damp. Be. Uh, they would use peat on the fire and the peat cuttings are still there on the common um, where they used to cut the peat and... Next door is the peak drying room. It was last lived in in early 1950s, and my first job on, on working on a farm at 15, I worked with a chap that was born here. Sure. He used to walk from here down to Russell's barn, let the cows out in the field for the day, uh, cycle to Blard School, which is about five miles. This is at the age of eight. Then he'd, <laughs> he'd cycle back at night, muck the cows out, put the hay in the racks, get the cows back in, because they had to go out for water. There was no water in the barn. There was no plumbing and piping or anything. Um, and then walk back up, and I think he'd be ready for bed by then, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he said he gave up school at 12. He's had enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you intimated off the mic a few minutes ago about a death here. Yeah, well, uh, Hugh that I used to work with when he was a, a teenager, unfortunately his dad died, and it was in the big storms of the 1930s, and they were snowed in. And so they had to carry him out and stick him in the barn with the cows. Uh, and it was six weeks before somebody got through to take him away to the church. And, uh, yeah, I said it must have been a quite strange experience. Yes. Uh, it must have been, really. Yes. Uh, it wasn't soon after that they left here and moved to a, a, a slightly less isolated place. <laughs> Anybody who comes up here must be staggered by the, the, the sheer elevated isolation of this place. It's absolutely magic, and the view outside is just to die for. Growing up, we um, my parents had B&Bs and hotels, so I was kind of used to... Um, looking after guests so it wasn't a problem for me to think of taking over this and running it and when I joined John first on the farm I wanted to work on the farm not off so even though I could have gone and gotten a you know proper job I thought how can I make money so that I can just <laughs> you know be my own boss but be on the farm mm -hmm. and I thought actually the accommodation is a good a good way to do it so I was quite happy um, and we have Rossler's Barn and a campsite as well and they are very basic and I did think do we need to invest a lot and get hot tubs and all the rest of it and then I thought actually we'll just rebrand them slightly and just say that they're eco off-grid <laughs> holiday lets and you know as long as you tell people you make people very aware of 
what they're coming to, you know, that you meet their expectations, then it's perfectly fine. You know, there is you no just, shower here. You just say, yeah. there's no shower. You know, it's back to basics. This yeah. is how it would have been. Our biggest selling point is yes. what we haven't got. Yeah. <laughs> so You're lowering expectations. Yeah, we're lowering expectations. And, you know, uh, it's sort of, Maria calls it de detox from technology. <laughs> and there's so many people I bring, because I pe bring people up because they obviously can't get here. So I drive them up and drop them off and... Usually the kids have had a great time driving up and the, the dad's looking really dour, thinking, where the heck are they going? The mum's dead excited because she's, uh, you know, Red Little House on the Prairie or something, you know. And, uh, and then by the time I pick them up again, the kids don't want to come away. They've had a great time. Dad's been whittling sticks and, you know, pretending he's a scout. And uh, they've had a great... And we get so many repeat bookings and we oh, get everything from yes. families to young intellectuals to businessmen. Oh. It's that sort of going back in time and being yourself rather than what everybody else tells you you should be, you know. But I think it's quite like doing meditation without the meditation. You do basic things like keeping warm and cooking. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's kind of it. That's yeah. all you do. And that's you all you can do. Yes. So, and, and actually for families, they really bond because there's only one warm room in the house. <laughs> yeah. So they can't escape from each other. And so they get to know each other again. And there's nothing to do except talk. And so yes. they talk to one another and it's lovely because often people go away on holiday but it's exactly the same as at home. They switch on the heating, they plug in their laptops and they have instantly disconnected from each other again. It's that, you know, coming from the car journey, they, again, they've just disconnected so they haven't really gotten away. Whereas yeah. this is a proper getaway from, you know, all the trappings of your life and, and it's, it's amazing. It's always transformative, I think. We had three um, young Londonites came and all they brought was uh, a case of Bollinger champagne. And you're thinking, God, God, how will anyone survive? But they've had a wonderful time. They've been back twice since and one's now got married and got a, an, a baby on the way. Anyway, we'll leave this wonderful Parkermore cottage and go down the hill and see Ross's barn. Well, it's a wonderful wander down through the woodland, John and Maria. Uh, there's lovely understory here, covered with moss on the boulders and clumps of holly, bare branches up into the sky. And we're coming down here, and this is still farmed land, though. Yeah, well, this is uh, Dodgson Wood SSI, which is uh, an SSI because of its underflora and um, bryophytes and also the Cecil Oaks. So it's our version of the Amazon, basically. It's a wonderful place. It was designated as SSI in the 60s. And then uh, in the, I think it was 1990, they got some money to fence it off because the sheep used to graze the, the woodland as well. And within 10 or 15 years, the very things that it was, they were trying to protect were dying out. And there's a rare plant called the touch-me-not balsam, which can only now be found on the east side of Coniston Lake and a few other areas. It used to be in Wales and quite a few other western side of the British Isles. And on that plant lives an even rarer thing called the netted carpet moth, and that was down to one moth. That's all they found in about five years was one moth. Wow. The only place where the, the plant was growing was where the deer were rutting, and so it didn't take a brain surgeon to work out that it actually needed some propagation, this plant, because it's only an annual. So we put the cows in, and the first year they counted 10 plants, the second year they counted a few hundred plants, 
and now there's literally millions of plants. Moth is there in abundance and they're now moving pupae to other places. So if anything happened here uh, and it was a disaster, then the little moths saved. Um, yes. But it is that sort of propagation of the land through trampling and that it's helped the understory because the brackens and briars have been sort of removed to a certain degree. In another month, this will just be blue with bluebells, absolutely teeming. Oh, magic. Primroses everywhere. I mean, wax lyrical, but it's wonderful to see it back again. Fabulous. And, and you come here as well, Maria? Absolutely. I love it. I love coming here. One of my soaps is called Tea in the Bluebells. <laughs> I noticed that. I do. Well, because I think Grisdale Arts started a tradition a bit like in Japan when the cherry blossom comes out, that you sit under the cherry blossom and have your tea. And so at Grisdale Arts, when the bluebells come out, you have a little tea ceremony for the bluebells. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you bring in all sorts of ingredients, names. In. And I see some cattle here as well. Yeah, well, those are the wonderful beasts that are doing all this work for conservation. You know, they're totally unpaid. <laughs> <laughs> they, they look very relaxed Yeah, to and me. It, it is their natural habitat. You know, if you went back thousands and thousands of years, um, cattle would roam the countryside. They would spend the winter in the lower ages in the woodland and mooch about and eat all the stuff that had been grown through the summer and then when the uh, warmer weather would come they'd move up the hill out of the flies and uh, yes. and uh, the, now the tourists yes, <laughs> to get out up and on the open fell where it's uh, yeah, a bit nicer and less hassle. Well we've been exploring quite a good deal during the course of this uh, conversation about farming and its uh, significance in your business putting into a wider context to the, uh, the state of agriculture on a national scale there's changes taking a place with the loss of subsidies how do you think it is are we in a good place i think it's going to be a very interesting time and i think it's vital that we try and tell it how it is how farming is important both cult for the cultural heritage and for the future of the environment farming gets a really lot of bad press and wrongly and a lot we're just a, an easy target a lot of the times and uh, i think you know, a lot of uh, elder statesmen farming are saying, you know, this is the biggest opportunity for change we've had since the First World War. We're delinked for Europe for perhaps all the wrong reasons, in my opinion. But for farming, it could be a marvellous future if we get it right. If we get it wrong, I think a lot of people just call it a day. I'm always a glass half full. Or a glass overflowing. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, you have to take all these changes and just see what benefit you can make from it. I know with the idea of having, say, a trade deal with America is scary, and obviously I absolutely don't want that, but it could mean that the public are more inclined to shop locally and buy from a source that they know, so it could actually be good for the farm. And in terms of losing, if we do lose subsidies, then um, we've been developing another side of the business which will make us more resilient mm -hmm. and I think if farmers focus on that making themselves resilient to political changes it'll be much better for them in the long term anyway you know yeah. never want to be reliant on anyone yeah, else. Yeah I totally agree I think that farms have become very used to being led by the by a carrot it's been like that for the last sort of 50 years and this could be a major change in the fact that people will make their own decisions like we have seen this coming and sort of future proofed a bit by diversifying in all sorts of different ways but I still want to farm I still feel that's what I want to do and I want my son to farm so I think getting there and talking to people and trying to get in people's heads about what's important it's like 
the other day, uh, George Eustace was talking in Parliament, and he actually mentioned rare breeds, and it was like, God, God, yes! You know, <laughs> I've never heard a Minister for Agriculture, or even a different minister, talk about rare breeds. So I just, you know, I do hope for the future. You know, you've got to... The other big thing, Mark, is that farmers think they can't leave the farm. Everything will be a disaster if they go away for one hour, let alone one day. <laughs> yes. And I think... One of my expanding bank managers years and years ago said the worst thing about farmers is they don't play golf. And I said, why? He said, well, they never mix with other businessmen. They, they go down the market or they'll go to the local cafe or the pub and mourn about everybody else. Yes. But actually meeting other people and talking about their business. In uh, a totally different in, business in, yeah, setting. Yeah, and gets the grey matter going and yes. thinking, well, I can do that. And, and farmers are the most innovative people in the world you know they can fix anything with a bit of string so why can't they start a business you know it's yeah i think it's amazing not only that you were so very very lucky to meet maria but i i tend i i, I tend strange. to feel you i remember that it's strange, strange that because uh, uh, in oxford somebody said oh i love your wife i said she's not wife i said well you better i'd be sooner <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's been a fantastic walk, Maria and John. I really, really, really love that. What we always do with Country Tribe, we, we always tail it off with a quick-fire question. One or two, just get a bit of feel for your sense of place. I asked Maria this one. What was your first Lakeland memory? Oh, my God. I think on the lake, on Coniston Lake, taking the um, steamboat gondola and organising a little music workshop... Uh, across it. <laughs> John, uh, your favourite view? My favourite place in the Lake District is, is Town House. Uh, I still love it and it's probably one of the most visited places in the Lake District, but just a walk around Town House is wonderful. And when my kids were little, we used to go up, say, 10 o'clock at night and go for a walk around when nobody was there. And I don't know, it's special. It's really, really special. Uh, have you a Cumbrian heroine or hero? Dead or alive? Can you answer that first, Maria? Beatrix Potter. Well, I find her very inspiring. She came to the Lake District from London and got into farming, absolutely inspired by farming. It's absolutely, she's a, a big motivation for me. John? I'd probably say Chris Bonington because I've met him several times, had a good chat with him. We have a lot in common, even though, again, he's not from around here, really. He's, he's hefted to the place now. He's been all over the world, but he loves the Lake District. Don't blame him, absolutely. Uh, have you got a favourite pub, John? Yep, the Red Lion, which is uh, just a mile down the road so I can walk to it and walk back. Uh, well, <laughs> and, uh, I've been in there since I was about 12, and I remember the policeman coming in one night and said, why are we having a good, uh, such a party? And he said, I said, well, I'm, it's my 18th birthday, but he said, but you've been coming in for about six years. <laughs> <laughs> you've been practising, that's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, we used to go in and play the piano badly. <laughs> uh, uh, Maria, what would be your favourite Lakeland day? Oh... Probably gathering the fell, um, stopping at Parkmore to make some drop scones oh. after we'd gathered the fell, walking back down, back to the farm and just feeding the pet lambs. <laughs> That's my ideal day. <laughs> John, would you have a sort of favourite day? Well, as Maria hinted before, gondola is very special and sitting on gondola on a nice summer's evening and travelling on late and it's silent, completely silent. It's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. OK, this is a good, solid one. If you were the Prime Minister for a day, what one thing would you do to safeguard 
the qualities of the Lake District? <laughs> we haven't got long, have we? <laughs> uh, well, I would uh, definitely have a chat with the uh, with George Eustace, the, the, uh, the environment secretary, and just try and convince him that what really needs to be done and uh, all these sort of urban experts uh, need to get up here and actually have a look. Okay, now this is the final question, folk. Um, when the time comes uh, and a few friends gather to remember you in a place that means something very special to you, where in Cumbria might it be, John? At Parkamere. <laughs> no other place for me. No, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's been special all my life and... Uh, Unfortunately, my nephew died recently and oh. I had to stand and do a eulogy and uh, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And uh, yeah, I just thought, what would people say at the end of my life? And it, it is a, it's something that you will never know, no. but I hope they say nice things. I think they'll be very happy for, uh, your memories will be very solid of you. Very happy I've gone. No, no, <laughs> they'll be all happy memories of you, John. <laughs> Uh, uh, Maria, is there some one place that you might fancy your ashes to be scattered? Yeah, I have a soap named after it. Oh. From the top of Bell Wood. And Bell Wood is um, behind our farm. There's a beautiful wood called Bell because it's full of bluebells in the oh. spring. And at the very top is a field, um, one of our fields. We don't use it that often, but I love taking the cattle up there um, to graze. And you get a magnificent view from the top of that. I will never forget this time we've spent together and I hope we'll meet again soon. It's been a special pleasure for countries trying to have your company. Uh, I recommend any listeners to book Parkermore if ever they feel they want to go back to nature and uh, sample some of your commodities. I think you're doing a fabulous job and uh, it's been a great honour for us to spend our time with you. Thank you very much. Well, it's nice to see you again, Mark. It's uh, been too many years. Lovely to meet you, thank you. Journey's end at Nibthwaite Grange in the Crake Valley. And we've had a fascinating tour today, Mark, uh, and actually one of the most memorable episodes recently for me and what an inspirational couple they are oh yes it's, it's marvelous to come here and normally we go on a proper hike but today we traveled across the countryside that they farm with a very distinct manner which is in keeping with this setting but very pioneering yeah they've managed to marry traditional upland hill farming with a whole new suite of businesses, really, with the wool, with the soap, and with, obviously, some of the holiday lets as well. They've got a very diversified business. Uh, diversification in farming is a kind of current buzzword, isn't it? But to see it here, and also to hear them being so passionate about it, part of the reason I think I feel so inspired by that is, with all the challenges piling up around farming at the moment it's easy to feel very negative, but I've come out of that conversation feeling completely opposite, that this could be an amazing time to reassess relationships with the land. With people like John and Maria, we're in good hands. We are indeed. There are tsunamis that occur economically all the time, 
um, traumas that occur. But human race is wonderfully resilient and uh, they are the personification of that resilience. Our usual housekeeping, if you've enjoyed this episode, there are another 28 at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can find us on social. Oh, uh, at Countrystride1, Facebook and Twitter. If you like what we do, the kindest thing you can do is give us a a big five-star rating on whatever your uh, podcast provider is. Please do leave a review. You can email us at any time. And we've got two fabulous podcasts coming up, which I'm massively looking forward to. The next one, a talk about female walking pioneers. Yes, Catherine Alto is coming all the way up from Exeter expressly to talk with us. Catherine has looked at all kinds of historic figures who pioneered walking like Dorothy Wordsworth and we're actually walking along Oldswater to Wordsworth Daffodils so that, that'll be rather lovely. For now we have a fabulous sunset over there Mark the, uh, the sun sinking over beyond Black Coombe from the Crake Valley and this inspirational talk with the farmers of the future we're signing off for now and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>